1: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're going down the medieval road today and with us we have Claire Kennan who is a medieval historian specialising in religion, urban centres, local history, trade and guilds. She's also the medieval specialist for the £1 million heritage lottery funded citizens project. Welcome Claire, how are you? I'm
2: very well, thank you. How are you?
1: Great. I'm actually really excited to start talking about this because um, we had a previous chat about this and I was, guys, I've got to tell you, Claire is so passionate about this <laughs> and it's awesome just to listen. I'm just going to let her drone on. I think Alex <laughs> and I uh, are just going to, we're going to leave, okay, and then... We'll just just... about medieval stuff. <laughs> what exactly. You <laughs> can do it all, but by... you don't need me and Alex. You can just, you know, you can answer the questions yourself, so... Um, <laughs> I'd be thinking they'd rather listen to you than us, so... (laughs) But listen, today we're going to be talking about the Black Death, guys. Yeah, you know, the Black Death. We're also going to be myth-busting. We've got a couple of myths we're going to bust as well. So let's start off with the most simplest question of all. What was the Black Death?
2: Okay, now you say this is a simple question, but actually it used to cause so much debate among historians. Um, People would really kind of get into arguments about what it was. Was it uh, the bubonic plague? Was it something else entirely? But we now know definitively from research that's been done in the last 10 years or so that the plague that arrived in England in 1348 was indeed uh, caused by this bacterium Yersinia pestis. And that was indeed carried by fleas, including those that you find on black rats. So we definitely know what this particular outbreak was and we're just so lucky because of these exciting developments in DNA testing that academics were able to extract the the dental pulp from skeletons in the plague burial pit in East Smithfield in about 2011 and that's how they've managed to confirm this. So we definitely know what this particular outbreak was.
1: So how did people actually understand the disease at the time? Because there's loads of different ways that loads of different things happened.
2: There is. So the first thing that I would really get across is just how terrifying this disease was. I think because it happened so, so long ago. I mean, it is, still, you know, it is still around, but it's not that common, thankfully. But you know, when it happened in the mid-14th century, it spread incredibly quickly. Um, it sort of, we think it appeared in about... 1346, 1347 in the east, and then, you know, rapidly traveled across Europe, arrived in England in 1348, um, it arrived on the south coast, and then it spread quickly throughout the country following the main trade routes. And when it hit towns or villages, it killed very quickly. Some chroniclers, including Henry Knighton, talk about it only taking a couple of days for people to die after they'd contracted this disease. People talk about um, the symptoms, which included these really painful swellings that we call buboes appearing sort of around the lymph nodes, so the neck, the armpits, the groin. You'd also perhaps get these black blisters of varying size covering your body. Your tongue and your lips might turn black. Perhaps you'd be coughing up blood. Extreme thirst seems to have been a thing. So it was terrifying to, to observe. Um, and people really felt that it was the apocalypse that was on its way. And to contemporaries, of course, they didn't think, well, it's this particular bacterium that's caused this disease. Um, They actually thought that it was from God. God was casting down this plague as a punishment for these sins. And um, the disease was then sort of spread by bad air or corrupted air that um, contemporaries called miasma. So religion is really at the center of people's understanding of this disease religion was at the center of everyday life. Everyone who knows me knows how much I go on and on about popular piety and, and people's worldview. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so important if we try and understand how people understood the Black Death and also how they reacted to it. Because, you know, we can stand back in, in 2020 and look back and think, well, that's a bit strange. Why on earth are they sort of thinking like that? But it was because everything was, was influenced by religion And there's really fantastic sources that that demonstrate this. So there's a wonderful 14th century poem, which is anonymous. And it talks about how people were stained with sin and that vice was ruling unchallenged. So, you know, people have invited this wrath in the form of play because you've got priests who are no longer chaste, merchants who are corrupt and obsessed with money and women who are, and I'm quoting this, no longer bound by the restraints of their sex. <laughs> so you there's this idea that people are, are behaving in this awful way and God's really angry. And so the plague is sent as a punishment. And you know, this is even depicted in paintings. There are some fabulous examples that show Christ literally throwing down arrows of plague onto the people below and people sort of praying up to him to, to stop this terrible disease. You've got people performing self-flagellation to try and appease God. So people's understanding of the disease was very much sort of situated within this context. Um, And it is very different to our understanding of how the disease spread um, and sort of was contracted and and the things we know from all that, you know, really fascinating DNA testing. I mean, one thing I should say is that, you know, this this traditional view that the Black Death suddenly appeared in 1346-7 to is now even being challenged. Um, Academics have found that actually... It could have been around for as long as, you know, 100 years or so beforehand, as early as as the 12th century over in East Asia. Um, So, you know, it's it's a very virulent disease. It keeps coming back as well. It doesn't just happen in 1348 and go away. It keeps coming back and is sort of seen as this. um, Yeah, this direct punishment from God.
0: What do they do to eradicate it?
2: Or if it's it's from
0: God, do you just nothing? You just take the smiting?
2: (laughs) Well, in most cases, obviously the only way that you're going to be able to to try and appease God is through prayer, through carrying out good works. Mm -hmm. And that is the main response that we see. There are some other interesting responses as well. So it was really popular to burn sweet smelling substances to ward off that sort of corrupted air. That was very popular and to carry kind of sweet smelling posies around in front of your nose. Um, We do see some what we would call practical measures i guess you know from our modern viewpoint um Mm -hmm. so in some of the italian city-states you get quarantine measures introduced um and you know the term quarantine actually comes from the italian quaranta which means 40 days apologies for my terrible pronunciation (laughs) we're all
0: bored of quarantine i hate quarantine
2: (laughs) you know in italy they were doing things like that to kind of try and you know Contain the illness, and again, they didn't understand it as this bacterial spread that was jumping from human to human via human lice and fleas and all the other lovely stuff. It was to kind of contain that bad air that was being passed and moved around. In England, um, <laughs> we were a bit behind the times, um, we, we didn't really do anything to that level. Um, interestingly, in England, the, the government particularly seemed to be interested in lessening the disruption that the disease was going to cause to daily life so they brought in a lot of social and economic measures rather than trying to sort of eradicate the disease completely um, so we can see they're very concerned with the potential labor shortages that might happen when the black death arrives so you know quite quickly they issued the statute of laborers to stop workers moving around and asking for more money mm-hmm. um, a little bit later they introduced sumptuary legislation in 1363 to kind of dictate what you could and couldn't wear um, so it seems to be different piecemeal approaches, depending where you are in the world. But definitely one of the main responses was trying to you know, appease God and, and go back to, to living a good Christian life.
1: Did this affect everybody equally? For example, the nobility, the poor, the traders, everybody.
2: So it was more likely to affect you if you were in a densely populated urban area. And the more densely populated areas tended to be um, those that were poorer. So the, these kind of communities were more likely to, to succumb just because you were living so closely together. And after, you know, a human had been infected with the bacterium, it was then spread quite quickly human to human by human fleas and lice, um, which is very gross. <laughs> so obviously if you're, you're living in really close quarters, you're more likely to catch it. If you're a nobleman, you could probably flee the urban centres to your countryside residence, you know. But if you're an average person living in a 14th century town or city, that is just not possible. But I would say that it does affect all levels of society in some way, either directly in the mortality rates or slightly later on in the social and economic changes that follow. And again, like you, you do get this impression from a lot of the artwork from the period. Um, So dance of death um, or the dance macabre motifs uh, where you've got the skeleton literally leading people in a dance towards their death. And the people depicted in those paintings included people from all walks of life. You've got priests, noble women, merchants, even children. Um, There's a very famous example of a stained glass window in St Andrew's church up in uh, Norwich, and that shows death playing a game of chess with a bishop. So the idea is that you know, anyone can be checkmated by death, no matter how high up in society you were or how close you were seen to be to God. So it does affect everyone from all walks of life. Um, even those in religious communities, you might think that effectively they're sort of quarantining themselves in their own enclosed community. But if one person got sick, because of how closely they lived together, they were really in danger. Parish priests as well were particularly susceptible because they had lots of contact on a daily basis with people, including those who were dying from the Black Death. I mean, even the royal family was affected. Um, King Edward III's daughter, Princess Joan, actually dies from the Black Death um, at Bordeaux on the 2nd of September 1348. So really, not long after it arrives in England. And we have a letter from Edward III where he's telling King Alfonso of Castile that Joan has died because Joan was due to marry Alfonso's son. And we get this exceptional insight into the private lives and feelings of the royal family and of a father in mourning. And that's interesting because a lot of people think, well, you know, death was everywhere in the Middle Ages. So, you know, they must have been used to it. But, you know, Edward really speaks of this intense bitterness of heart um with having to pass on the news of Joan's death he talks about destructive death who seizes young and old alike sparing no one and reducing rich and poor to the same level so although it certainly affects certain groups in society more than others it does have a huge impact on everyone in one way or another
0: i know you said it's everyone says it's god that Did- but is there any sort of sector of society or any kinds of people that are blamed by others for the spread of the disease? Or do they just not understand it enough to be able to sort of pinpoint a human, like, cul- culprit, if you like?
2: So there def- There's definitely scapegoating. Uh-huh. Definitely scapegoating. Um, there's, some, there's some very funny scapegoating that goes on. So, for example, the Westminster Chronicler blames Queen Philippa's courtiers, who, who bring outlandish fashions to the court. Um, and he talks about, <laughs> I know it's, you know, did not like the, the catwalk's latest fashions. of people wandering around in these ridiculously long sleeved gowns where everything is laced and strapped and slashed. And he gets really cross about it. Um, but on a more serious note, certain communities are really sort of explicitly blamed for bringing the Black Death to a particular area. Um, in particular, the Jewish community um, sort of receives a lot of aggression and anger and they are used as scapegoats. Um, they're often blamed for poisoning local water sources and, and bringing the plague in that way. And actually, you know, in some places they are murdered. That Mass murder is, is committed against the Jewish community. So in the official records um, from the Crown of Aragon and by like, lots of very um, interesting archaeological work that's been done, we know that actually several hundred Jews were brutally murdered in that area following the arrival of the Black Death. So amongst all this sort of, this panic and this fear and this this feeling that the apocalypse is coming, people, they are looking for someone to blame. And often it is, you know, those groups that were perceived to be different. And and in this case, in Europe, it was the Jewish community. Do we know how many people fell victim to the disease? So we normally give an estimate of around about 50% of the population. Um, Obviously, that's quite hard to track because we don't have any sort of detailed population records. Um, And you know, depending where you are geographically, it varies. So, you know, if if you're in a very busy town, the death rate is likely to be higher, but it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. I mean, there are some really interesting cases that we that sort of highlight just. How quickly the disease could could spread. So um, I mentioned uh, monasteries and nunneries, these enclosed communities. If if the Black Death got in there, it was likely the entire house could be wiped out. So um, you know that was that could potentially be a very dangerous situation to be in. There's an example from Walling Abbey where the the abbess, um, a lady called Isabella de Perum, she dies from the Black Death on the sixth of May, thirteen forty nine. Then an election for the next abbess has to happen the following day. But the woman that they elect, Benedictine de Grey, she dies from the Black Death before she can be sort of instated as, as, as the new abbess. So they then have to go through the process again. And by this point, only two of the nuns in the entire house are well enough to be involved in the process out of um, 10. So it's, it's, very, it's very quickly spread in these close communities and we know that certain towns are hit harder than others. Um, I mean, if you look at London, had 80,000 inhabitants at the start of the 14th century. By 1400, it's less than half that. Norwich loses two-thirds of its inhabitants between the 1330s and the 1370s. In Lincolnshire, um, in Grimsby and Boston, for example, the population falls by between 40 and 50%. Land is being um, sort insane. of passed. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's a huge...
0: I did read a book set in the aftermath and it was just like, I'd never considered it before, but the characters are literally wandering through like empty villages and stuff where literally like, there's just all this empty space where people were.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it happens, it doesn't happen as quickly as perhaps contemporaries would lead us to believe. Now that's something that's very interesting because we're sort of led to believe by the chroniclers that this happened overnight and literally overnight an entire village would be deserted. It doesn't happen quite like that. It is a slower process. And the reason for that is because the plague keeps coming back. So it doesn't just hit in 1348. It comes back again in the 1360s, the 1390s, throughout the, 14, uh, throughout the 15th century. Then, of course, again, 1665 to six. And the reason, one of the reasons that it, it feels so stark is that in the lead up to 1348, the population has been expanding at an unsustainable rate across Europe. Mm. Within a few centuries, it's tripled, towns and cities are expanding, people are trying to cultivate land that's not suitable for agriculture. There's this huge pressure on land and resources. And then the plague comes and, you know, really sort of drops the population by about half and then keeps it low. And so, you know, it does feel very apocalyptic. Obviously, streets would feel emptier. But, you know, we have examples that show that actually the idea that these villages were deserted immediately isn't quite the case. So if you take Warren Percy in North Yorkshire, very famous example of an abandoned medieval village. Its population is halved by the Black Death. But the village isn't abandoned until about 1500, and that's because of a number of factors. So, you know, this, this process is slower than we may perhaps think at
0: first. I think I've wandered near... Um... Hounds tour in Devon around somewhere like it's exactly like you say it was abandoned but not in the immediate aftermath um but what happens in the immediate aftermath how does society cope with suddenly looking around and all these people are gone
2: so, I mean, one of the big pressing problems is is in the area of parish priests. Um, we get a lot of complaints that because the priests are dying off, uh, less experienced men are then being called into this service, and so the standard of priests has, has dropped, and that obviously concerns people because how on earth can they prepare for a good death and a proper funeral if the priest is useless? Or make um, God take the plague away? Exactly, exactly. So you know, and they're really, really concerned about that. There is also a concern about you know the fact that half the workforce is wiped out so you do have immediate problems with that um but this kind of this idea that all things were so much better for people after the black death they were but not immediately because obviously you would have been grieving the loss of family friends neighbors um yeah there's that kind of human side to it that often gets forgotten I mean, of course, you know, later in the um, 14th centuries, from 1375-ish onwards, things do get better. You know, there's um, there are more opportunities for people, the, the severe depopulation, and and then the fact that that stays low means that, well, people can, can go into jobs that perhaps weren't open to them before. They can buy up land that is now available. There's an increase in real wages, so they actually have this purchasing power that isn't paralleled in relative terms anyway until at least the 20th century so it's there is that immediate impact there is that shock but a lot of the social um and economic and cultural consequences do tend to come in sort of the decades afterwards
1: Mm. do you know i can hear history repeating itself (laughs) <laughs> and I'm get, I'm, no we'll around, have yeah.
0: a vaccination don't before <laughs> no, no, people no, start melting down there will be no eight waves of covid and, oh yeah. no, no no i don't mean covid <laughs> i don't
1: mean covid i mean like like big events that have wiped out large populations for example the world wars and things like that you could just you know society changed the same way it did after the black death
2: yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's certainly there's certainly something to be said about that. That you know, when when the human race faces these kind of huge moments, that of course there's going to be change. Sometimes it's in terms of society structures, and we do see that you know after both world wars, but also as well in kind of you know how people then decide what's important in their life. You know, in the 14th century, more and more people turned towards religion and, and really you know with greater enthusiasm than has been seen before. I think you know in 2020. We're all reevaluating that work-life balance and you know, what's important to us in the 21st century. so yeah, there's definitely some interesting parallels there. Mother’s Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones. Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns.
1: Did it actually impact people psychologically? I mean how can
2: we tell from so far back? I mean it would have been absolutely terrifying and um, most of the kind of the impression of the psychological impact we get comes from the contemporary chronicle accounts. So um, we get these really vivid descriptions of only a tenth of mankind being left alive and not enough people alive to bury the dead Um, We also know that at the same time as the Black Death, there is an outbreak of pestilence amongst the livestock, particularly sheep. And there are reports of thousands and thousands of sheep dying in the fields and being left there to rot. So, you know, it would have really felt like the coming of the apocalypse. And if you look at the art and the literature from the period as well, people become really preoccupied and open about death and the image of death and the decaying body you just have to look at the cadaver or the, the transi tombs from the period, where you see these effigies that are made to resemble the decaying body of the person inside, and they could be incredibly graphic. You know, we're talking skeletal features, bits of sinew, and you know maggots. It it really it really had a huge psychological impact on people.
0: Tell us specifically how the Black Death affects women.
2: So this is a really interesting area and uh, Caroline Barron has been one of the leading scholars on this in, in her work called The Golden Age of Women and she highlights that basically after the Black Death you've got these opportunities for women in cities such as London and York that suddenly open up um, so for example she's found in medieval London um, after the Black Death that a third of apprentices in the crafts and trades were female and that is incredible because we don't often associate that kind of work with women in the medieval period. So everything from being a silk woman to a bell founder, you could be a merchant, there is a whole range of opportunities. And that's because after the Black Death, women's labour is at a premium. And you see these similar patterns throughout history, you know, again, it happens with both world wars. So in the decades after the Black Death, women are able to take part in this skilled labour force. They run artisan workshops, they employ male servants, they train boy apprentices. They engage in overseas trade. And what's really important with kind of looking at the position of women in the Middle Ages is that they're normally defined by their nearest male relatives. So that is either their father or their husband. Normally they have more than one husband because they'd remarry several times. And it's only in widowhood that they kind of get any real social or economic freedom. But what happens after the Black Death? is that some married women manage to trade as what we call fem souls. So that's trading as if they're single. So all their mm. business dealings, their debts, any legal cases, that is their responsibility and not their husband's, which is quite incredible for, you know, what is often thought to be a very restrictive time for women. So we also see them um, becoming what is known as a, um, a free woman of the city. So they can, you know, be more involved in city affairs. I mean, they're never able to be involved in politics at any level. That is something that the Black Death does not change. That remains a male-dominated realm. But certainly in economic terms, there are many more opportunities for women in the decades after the Black Death.
1: You've mentioned earlier that people didn't turn away from religion. Is there anything more you can expand on what happened there with the side of religion?
2: So, I mean, a few people, of course, perhaps they turned away from religion and, you know, it felt that God had abandoned them. But for the most part, their, their sort of um, link with religion became even stronger because of this idea that it's this divine punishment. And what the Black Death does is it accelerates some trends that we already see happening in popular piety. Um, particularly, there's this sort of shift from the focus on um, monastic communities to the parish and its church, particularly in terms of material investment. But these developments are not the result of the Black Death alone. They're sort of, um, they're compounded and and they've been facilitated by earlier changes. So, I mean, really to understand this, you do have to go back to 1215 and not for the sealing of the Magna Carta, which is what everyone remembers that year (laughs) for, uh, but for something called the Fourth Lateran Council. And out of this came the idea that the nave, which is the area of the church where the laity would stand and hear the mass, was actually their responsibility. They had to look after it. They had to make sure it was prepared. There weren't any leaks. They had all the various bits and pieces they needed for church services. And they, they really took this to heart. And the reason that they did this was because of the development of something else, the doctrine of purgatory, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with, this kind of waiting room between heaven and hell that is nothing like the pleasant dentist waiting room with a nice magazine, but you know a place where you would endure some pain for some time mm. while you worked off your sins. And so, you know, one of the ways you could speed your way through purgatory was performing good works, which included giving money to your church. And now you're responsible for looking after the knave. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're killing the two birds with one stone, essentially. And of course, after the Black Death, in those decades following, people have that increase in purchasing power. So we see a lot more money being poured into the parish church. And it's a really popular way to try and offset some of that sin and prepare for a good death. We also see an explosion in the number of um, chantries. And I mean, you know, in really simple terms, a chantry is basically where you pay, either in cold hard cash or by donating some land or property to rent and raise revenue. Um, you pay for a priest to pray for your soul, normally for a set number of years. But if you were particularly wealthy, it could be for eternity. And you know, that was essential for getting your soul through purgatory. So with you know, the Black Death and the recurrent waves of plague, what better way? to secure the safety of your soul than by actually paying someone to pray for you. And so we, so we see these developments, but they are they are around in the 14th century beforehand. And, you know, if you couldn't afford the private chantry, which, you know, most people couldn't, well, then you could, you could join your parish guild, um, which is a form of communal chantry. So it's, you know, groups of men and women who um, they come together in the parish church. They dedicate themselves to a saint, maybe a holy object and they pray and they have uh, feasts to honor their saints and they guarantee you importantly a proper funeral with all the all the prayers and all the trimmings so we see these these particular areas become more popular but they are around beforehand but i think it's the fact that you know the black death has this huge psychological impact people need to prepare for it in case it comes again but also they want to ensure that their souls are safe and for the first time for many of them they've got money to actually be able to do that and to go above and beyond what is already offered by the church which is really interesting
0: um this is amazing i never knew that the black death was so interesting i'm using (laughs) this yeah rats play horrible boils under your arms whatever did it in year seven bored now um what can we still see of it today i mean like i mentioned i've been walking around Hounds Tor and you can wander there right through the foundations of a medieval village that is no longer there because it was uh, and like you say, they um, it was later, they abandoned it in about 1500 or, or after even, but it was like decimated by the Black Death. So there's that. But what can you see of it today?
2: So, I mean, Importantly, I should note that you can still see the Black Death, quite literally, uh, because bubonic plague still exists. If you Google it, you will get some really gruesome images. Uh, Luckily for everyone, it is curable by antibiotics. So the Black Death still exists in certain parts of the world. But from the mid-14th century pandemic, the lasting sort of reminders that you can still see... Are mainly on art and architecture. So as I mentioned just now, the kind of, you know, the rebuilding, the remodeling, the enlargement, the embellishing of these parish churches that really takes off in the years following the Black Death. So when you're looking at your medieval parish church, and there are still so many of them in existence, despite Henry VIII and Edward VI's best efforts, <laughs> they're still there. They might not look like they would have done. Um, but, you know, things like the fact that the aisles were enlarged, um, little side chapels were added. Importantly as well, things like um, rebuilding the Western Tower of the church. And there are some spectacular examples that you can still see today. I mean, my personal favourite, and everyone who knows me will know that I I bang on about this all the time. St. James's Church up in Louth, which is a small market town in Lincolnshire. Absolutely stunning example. And it's so interesting because here, the parish guilds and the local community, they come together to rebuild the church spire. And they start the project in the mid-15th century, so it's quite a while after the Black Death. But, you know, they they can't actually start building it until 1500 because they have to save up all this money. It costs about £200,000 in today's money. You can't get a mortgage for that. You've got to have the cash. So they come together and they build this incredible church spire. And, you know, it's 295 feet tall. It's the tallest surviving medieval church spire in England it is spectacular. And there are so many wonderful examples across the country of of these, these churches. And we see a really important shift in the style of architecture as well. So we see the emergence of perpendicular Gothic architecture, which just becomes really, really popular after the Black Death. And, you know, the idea here is that people want to elevate their thoughts upwards to God. So The key features are things like really high ceilings with beautiful fan vaulting and groin vaults, detailed stonework and carvings. You've got these large pointed arches and windows filled with colourful stained glass. You know, it is spectacular. And again, it's something that we sort of we, we all associate with the Middle Ages, but that change came after the Black Death. And there are some very famous examples um, across England and Europe. So one of my personal favourites is King's College Chapel in Cambridge. It's beautiful. And then, of course, you've got those kind of darker and more gruesome artistic developments which survive, yeah. including the Dance of Death and the Cadaver and the Transy Tombs. Um, so it's, you know, there's still a lot of physical material things that we can still see from from the Black Death, you know, when you are out and about. I mean, in my local parish church, they have a list of, vickers going back to the middle ages um and you know it's really interesting that in the medieval period we see the turnover of about six or seven priests in during the black death years so the kind the evidence is is all around us it just you know you just have to kind of keep an eye out for it
1: we've done a bit of myth busting i think we should do a bit more
2: okay do you agree alex yeah always
0: people love myth busting
1: (laughs) um But because we've done, do you know what, I'm gonna start with a slightly different one, um, only because we've busted one, and I really wanna do this one. So if you go back into, you know, you see some of these images of these doctors with these massive cones on their faces. I mean, what is that all about? <laughs> so that's,
0: Oh, the beak that's, things. Yeah, the, like,
1: the cone, like, instead of being cone head, it's like cone face.
0: Yeah, they're creepy.
2: <laughs> so the whole cone face thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, that, that is synonymous with... When, Are when you about, about to
0: place. shit all over the cone face thing?
2: I might, yeah, because... Yeah. <laughs> It's Good, I mid, hate them. <laughs> it's, not, it's not mid-14th century. It drives me mad when I see t- people talking about the Black Death and they've got the, the, the plague doctors with the sort of the big... This marks. is the 1660s one, yes. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it comes later. It see, uh, Rebecca Riddell,
0: I read your book.
2: <laughs> and, you know, it's just... Oh, it drives me nuts. Like, you know, that wasn't a thing in 1348. It comes later. So, so no, I mean, people were sort of, you know, trying to cover their faces to stop the bad air getting in and they were burning sweet smelling things and you know, carrying those, those scented bouquets. but they were not wearing masks. Yeah. They weren't home facing, <laughs> not in the mid 14th century. No.
0: I'm guilty of another one. Cause I mentioned rats and stuff. Is it fleas on rats?
2: It is, but like rats get a bad rap for this. It's not just the rats. It's other mammals too. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, they do bless them. They do get a bad rap. Yes, the bacteria it's carried by the fleas on rats, but also on other mammals. And then the really gross thing that most people don't realise is that actually rats aren't the main transmitters. It's humans. (laughs) Humans were covered in fleas and lice, and once you had the bubonic plague in your system, your fleas and lice would jump to the person next to you and spread it. So (laughs) you know, it's yeah. So not just the rats. Not just
0: what's the... the one that winds you up the most? Is it the cone face one? That it's one. The cone face
2: yeah.
1: One. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I don't like this whole idea of the flat of flats. The fleas jumping from people. Oh, this, this, I'm grossed out. I'm worse <laughs> than you. Just describing...
0: and told us that medieval people were clean.
1: That's a lie. Still had
2: fleas. Like, you know, I mean, cats and dogs can be clean and they sort of get fleas, bless them. Eleanor is vindicated. Yeah, yeah. They just
0: don't have flea spray.
2: No. They had, you know, and when you got them, it was difficult to get rid of them. But, you know, medieval people were concerned with cleanliness. And again, you see that in a lot of urban centres. You know, in London, they employed scavengers and rakers to kind of clear all the refuse and, and the crap, quite literally out of the city i mean they did dump it in the thames but they took it out of the city you you can see the logic they've
0: done half of it there then they drank the water from the thames but
2: exactly but But, you know you see you see them there are efforts definitely we don't
0: blame that entirely on them it's not until the 1850s that they actually stopped people drinking out of the thames so it's not just yeah the clean water act in the 1850s finally banned water companies from taking uh yeah this is my george the research believe it or not yeah Look, banned people, you... ta- bank companies taking a supply from the river thames
1: but looking at the thames i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't even stick my finger or my toe in there it's yeah but it was worse ran. even
0: in my lifetime i remember it was much much worse and i remember when your i was little, a big furore breaking out about the state of the water wasn't there
1: your lifetime
2: I mean, in the Middle Ages, that people honest. literally lived on the Thames. You yeah. know, across London Bridge, there were houses, so people would have been dumping their refuse directly in it. So, so hold on,
1: Alex, are you talking about the medieval period, your time?
0: No, I'm talking about <laughs> people going mad about... Uh, there was still a stat, I remember, that I'm not on Thames Water, I'm on North East Surrey, so I feel comfortable sharing this, that Thames Water has been through someone seven times, and that was years ago, so oh, maybe God. it's more now.
1: <laughs> Ew yeah Wow. oh that's rank thanks for letting me know but do you know what i live in poland i don't care anymore you're
0: never coming <laughs> back now does that mean i can have your house because you're too scared to come back because of the water
1: oh well, i don't know do you want to live in uh, in east london i don't think no, so
0: screw that no way
1: <laughs> exactly she won't cross the river to the better side of london
0: <laughs> east london is many things it's not better and South London, but that's not why we're here <laughs> we, <are. laughs> we already discussed we were going to do at this point um, villages being deserted overnight, but we covered that. but how do you compare the Black Death to this current nightmare?
2: Right. So this is an interesting one, and it, it's one that medieval historians get asked a lot. So the first thing that I would really highlight is that both pandemics are global in their scale. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, there's a lot of exciting research now being done into the Black Death in North Africa, in China. It, you know, and they both have spread so quickly because we're so connected. I think people think that, you know, being connected globally is a really modern thing and it's not in the 14th century. People were trading all across, you know, East Asia and and that's how it spread. It spreads along the trade routes, it spreads. You know through all these kind of arteries of trade and communication so it shows just how connected the world was back then I mean in terms of the disease itself thankfully we are not facing mortality rates like they were in 1348 mm-hmm. um but I mean one of the interesting things that I think will come out of this will be that kind of that shift in mindset and when we mentioned this with both world wars as well you know when we are faced with something this monumental it does it makes you pause and it makes you you know take stock and think about what is important and you know i think people in 2020 are already starting to do that people in 1348 certainly did that and they we saw that in you know the huge numbers of people joining the parish guilds or investing in the church so there are going to be societal and and cultural shifts that will be interesting to look at and of course in both cases there are economic implications which which are terrifying um you know i mean in 1348 obviously if you survived the black death and you could hold, hold on for a few decades things got better for you we're only just beginning to see the, the economic fallout from from covid so i mean there there are some interesting similarities i think and we're sort of only just at the beginning of, of seeing what those might be
1: Claire, thank you for joining us. That was so excellent. I mean, I look and listen to you speak about this for hours. You're very, very passionate about what you do. But you about us-
0: disease.
1: <laughs> we all have a disease. Do you know what? Like, That's because Alina's
0: passionate about something equally is dis- disgusting. So oh. it's why you get on.
1: I know, I know. Disturbed mind. You too make me
0: look balanced with World War One. <laughs>
1: Thanks. I appreciate, I appreciate that. I really do. Cheers for that. Mm. But uh, yeah, So thank you for talking to us about The Black Death, what it was about How it impacted society socially About women, about Priests and religion Because that was actually really interesting So thank you so much for giving us this overview Of, well, The Black Death
0: Join us tomorrow when Lawrence Owen will be with us To talk about mummies And that's not the lovely kind that cook for you and do your washing That's actual wrapped up in bandages um, And smelling bad mummies Uh, That one's great, so don't miss it Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service
1: announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.
2: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.